they found on the plane may very well be a spur from one of its forelegs. If this is it, as large as the monstrous creature we're looking for, I doubt whether anything that ever lived could be as deadly. It's strong beyond anything its size suggests. It walks, leaps, and flies. Its appetite is insatiable. You mean this cute little bug? Yeah, that cute little bug. In all the kingdom of the living, there is no more deadly or voracious creature than the praying mantis. I'm Captain Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the winners of the 74th Annual Hunger Games. I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life. My name is Optimus Prime. I am the future of war. Resistance is futile. Jedi's strength flows from the Force, but beware of the dark side. It's got a nice ring to it. I mean, it's not technically accurate. It's, it's a gold titanium alloy. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. This is uh, Reach Cult, and you're listening to Tracks and Sci-Fi. Hello, everybody. This is Mark Daniels from the Great Pacific Northwest, and you are listening to Treks in Sci-Fi. This is episode 630 for Sunday. April 2nd, 2017. I'm back this week with another classic science fiction movie. Today's movie is The Deadly Mantis. Before I get into this week's podcast, I want to thank Rico for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoy it. With that said, I'm going to play the trailer to The Deadly Mantis. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. I'll be back after the trailer with some movie information, and then I'll get into the movie. the bodies easy in all the kingdom of the living there is no more deadly or voracious creature than the praying mantis you think you'll be able to drive it out to sea i hope so every device of military science every defensive weapon radar planes rockets marshaled to destroy a thousand tons of beastly fury a monster leaving a trail of carnage spreading panic across a continent. Get the alert button. Yes, sir. 
nothing in its path was safe. Not the planes in the sky. Not the ships at sea. Nor the vehicles on the ground. You boys might just as well go back. There aren't any bodies. And then this most dangerous monster that ever lived challenged the security of our cities. Before I get into The Deadly Mantis, I want to talk a little about a couple of movies I saw at the theater last week. I saw Kong, Skull Island, Life, and Ghost in the Shell. The first movie I saw was Kong, Skull Island. It was a great movie. I really enjoyed it. You have to see this movie on the big screen. It's amazing. The second movie I saw was Life. Life was a disappointment to me. It looked really great, but it's an alien ripoff. I wouldn't pay full freight for this movie. I'd wait for it to come out on the red box. Uh, The last movie I saw was Ghost in the Shell. I really enjoyed it. It also looked amazing. I'm going to have to sit down and watch the anime movies now. Definitely go see Ghost in the Shell at the movie theater. You gotta watch it on the big screen. Okay, that's all I wanted to say about the movies I saw recently. So let's get back into The Deadly Mantis. The Deadly Mantis is a 1957 American science fiction movie. It was directed by Nathan Geron and produced by William Alland. It stars Craig Stevens, William Hopper, and Alex Tolton. It was released on May 26, 1957, and has a running time of 79 minutes. And here's the cast, starting at the top. Craig Stevens was Colonel Joe Parkman. William Hopper was Dr. Nedrick Jackson. Alex Tolton was Marge Blaine. Donald Randolph was General Mark Ford. Florenz Ames was Professor Anton Gunther. Paul Smith was Colonel Parkman's clerk. Phil Harvey was the radar man. Floyd Simmons was the sergeant. Paul Campbell was Lieutenant Pizer. And Helen Jay was Mrs. Farley. Here's a little information on the director, producer, screenwriter, and the cast of today's movie. Starting with the director, Nathan Geron. He was an American movie art director and later movie director. He was born Neftelli Hertz Geron on September 1st, 1907. He began his career as an art director, winning an Academy Award in 1942 for How Green Was My Valley. His other movie credits include The Razor's Edge, Winchester 73, and Harvey. In the 1950s, he began to direct and was known for science fiction and fantasy movies such as The Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, The Brain of Planet Eros, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, and First Men in the Moon. He also directed episodes of science fiction television shows like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Lost in Space, and Land of the Giants. He passed away October 23rd, 2002. Next up, William Alland. He was an American movie producer and writer. He was born March 4th, 1916. 
He started off in movies as an actor. His most notable role was that of the reporter who investigates the life of newspaper tycoon Charles Foster Kane in Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. He will be most remembered for producing science fiction movies of the 1950s. He produced The Creature from the Black Lagoon, The Revenge of the Creature, This Island Earth, Tarantula, The Creature Walks Among Us, The Mole People, The Land Unknown, The Colossus of New York, and The Space Children. He passed away November 11, 1997. Next up, Martin Berkeley. He was an American movie and television screenwriter. He was born August 21st, 1904. I couldn't find a whole lot of information about him. The one thing that stood out about him was the fact that he collaborated with the House Un-American Activities Committee in the 1950s. He was identified by another screenwriter as being a communist. At first, he denied the claim. He later would admit that he was a member of the Communist Party and began to help the committee with its investigation. It was reported that he implicated up to 161 people as being members of the Communist Party. If you ever seen the movie Hail Caesar with George Clooney, he would be one of the guys who named names. If you haven't seen Hail Caesar, watch it. It's a great movie. It's funny. Anyway, he passed away May 6, 1979. Here's a little information on the stars of today's movie. Starting at the top, Craig Stevens. He was an American movie and television actor. He was born Gail Shickles Jr. on July 8, 1918. He left college to pursue an acting career in Hollywood. He would meet his future wife on the set of the movie Dive Bomber in 1941. During World War II, he served in the United States Army Air Corps 1st Motion Picture Unit. The unit made propaganda and training films. He will be most remembered for his role as Peter Gunn. He passed away May 10, 2000. Next up, William Hopper. He was an American stage, movie, and television actor. He was born January 26, 1915. He was the only child of actress and Hollywood columnist Hedda Hopper. He appeared in over 80 movies in the 1930s and 40s. He served in the United States Navy during World War II. After the war, he left his acting career. In the 1950s, director William Wellman persuaded him to resume his acting career. He will be most remembered for his role as private detective Paul Drake in the long-running series Perry Mason. He passed away on May 6, 1970. Last but not least, Alice Tolton. She was an American movie and television actress. She was born on June 7, 1920. She studied acting and dancing as a child. She was crowned Miss Atlanta in 1938 and would later represent the state of Georgia in the Miss America Beauty Contest. In the early 1950s, she would break two vertebrae in a riding accident. She would act in a handful of movies and television shows in a career that spanned several decades. She passed away April 7, 1992. And that's all I have for movie information. Now let's get into the movie. Our movie today starts in the South Seas. A volcano explodes, eventually causing the North Pole icebergs to shift. 
Below the melting polar caps, a 200-foot-long praying mantis, trapped in the ice for millions of years, begins to stir. Soon after, the military personnel at Red Eagle One, a military base in northern Canada that monitors information gathered from the distant early warning line, realize that the men at one of their weather stations are not responding to calls. Red Eagle One's base commander, Colonel Joe Parkman and Lieutenant Pizer, fly to the outpost to investigate. The outpost has been destroyed. There's no trace of the men, and giant slashes have been left in the snow outside the post. Two men don't just vanish. These did. I don't get it. Everything was under control when they checked in at 0800. Nothing unusual has been reported since then. No storms. It wasn't a gale that wrecked this shack. The sides are caved out as though something crashed into the roof. Well, it was a plane that hit it. Maybe there's a very ordinary explanation for what happened. Maybe the men are on the way back to the base right now. On foot? There will be footprints in the snow. You see any? here. What do you got? I don't know. Plane? No plane ever made that short a run. Helicopter? Oh, a helicopter couldn't make a furrow like that. ordinary explanation to what happened, but I wouldn't take any bets. When a blip on the base's radar screen is sighted, Colonel Parkman sends his pilots out, but their intended target disappears. Later, an Air Force cargo plane is attacked by the giant Manis. A search plane finds the wreckage of the missing plane. Colonel Parkman and Lieutenant Pizer fly out to the wreckage. They search the wreckage and find no trace of the crew, and this time, in addition to huge slashes in the snow, they find a five-foot-long pointed object. Colonel Parkman takes the unknown object to General Mark Ford at the Continental Air Defense Command in Colorado Springs, Colorado. General Ford has gathered a group of top scientists, including Professor Gunther, to examine the object. I'm General Ford. Oh, no, no, no. Please sit down. Gentlemen. I realize that the Air Force hasn't given you much time in which to make your tests, and that a definitive job may have been out of the question in the short time you've had. But the Department of Defense hopes that during these two days of concentrated efforts, you've come to some conclusion about this. Professor Gunther, I believe you're in charge. All of us are agreed to accept one thing. This appendage comes from some living creature. But as to what creature it was once a part of, we, we are completely in the dark. Our anatomist, Dr. Arnold Burton, has been unable to identify this object. 
Professor Harvey Pierce is certain from his exploration that the hook cannot belong to the neurological system. Well, you seem to know more about what it isn't than what it is. That is correct, sir. Gentlemen, let's be logical. Now, you tell me that this hook comes from something that's alive, all right. But it wasn't a part of the cargo, and it wasn't in the plane when it took off. So it must have come aboard after the crash, right? That sounds logical. Now, what was it that came aboard? It shouldn't be so difficult. You know the animal life of the Arctic. We have asked ourselves that, General. You're not suggesting that it comes from some creature at present unknown. It's a possibility we suggest you investigate, sir. How? We recommend that you ask Dr. Nedrick Jackson of the Museum of Natural History here in Washington to look into this. He is their chief paleontologist and the country's leading authority on the Oligocene carnivory. You lost me, Professor. He deals with life of past geological periods as shown by the fossil remains of plants and animals. He has been able to reconstruct prehistoric creatures with no more to start with than a handful of bones. General Ford calls Dr. Nedrick Jackson at his office at the Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. Dr. Jackson was helping the museum magazine editor, Marge Blaine, plan her next issue when the call comes in. Oh, excuse me. Jackson talking. The Pentagon? Sure, I'll wait. What do you know? Maybe they want to call me back in the service. This is Dr. Jackson. General Ford? Yes. Yes. I see, General. Of course, sir, I'll be right over. Everything all right? Of course. Well, it isn't every day the Pentagon calls you. You're very nosy. Okay, be mysterious. Well, if I tell you, you'll keep it a secret? Hope to die. They found an old bone up at the North Pole. The Pentagon wants to know to whom it belongs. Dr. Jackson goes to the Pentagon to examine the unknown object. It doesn't look like bone. More like gristle or cartilage. And a structure as large as this would have to serve a very specialized purpose in order to be cartilaginous. Have you any idea what it comes from? No, not the faintest. If it were bone, we could start from that. What it does tell me, however, is that it can't be from an animal. Because every known species of animal has a bony skeleton. As a matter of fact, the reptile structure is bony. And gentlemen, even birds have bony skeletons. Looks like we're getting nowhere fast. On the contrary, we're making considerable progress. At least we know what it can't be, which is bound to lead us to what it is. Well, then, is there anything that doesn't have a bony skeleton? Mm, lots of things. Worms, snails, insects, shellfish, some invertebrates where there's skeletons on the outside. It's a, well, it's an outer shell called an exoskeleton, which is hard and rigid enough to protect the internal organs. Insects have thin, flexible places between their heads and bodies, which allows them freedom of movement. And then they have folds where the muscles are attached. It's a possibility. An insect? Well, that's where the process of elimination seems to lead us. 
course, if it is an insect, it certainly doesn't tell us what kind it is. We'll find that out partly from what we know, but mostly from what we deduce. Doc, you're beginning to sound like Sherlock Holmes. Sort of. Professor Gunther, the fluid from the end of the hook, you had it analyzed? Well, we did what we could in the time we had. Of course, you didn't know exactly what you were looking for. Precisely. Well, I'm not too much of an entomologist, but I do seem to remember that with very few exceptions, the blood of insects contains no red corpuscles. Now that we suspect this hook may have come from an insect, would you test the fluid for me and let me know what you get? Be glad to. Thanks. Well, General, that's about it. Professor Gunther will make his tests and we'll see what we can dream up. Do you think we'll get somewhere? We'll do our best. Dr. Jackson returns to his office at the Museum of History, where Marge is waiting for him. She begins to question him about his meeting at the Pentagon and begs him for a scoop. So that's what they wanted to see you about. Don't you play games with me, Ned Jackson. I'm sorry. There's an old saying that you can't keep anything from the press. And even if I'm only running a museum mag, I haven't lost my nose for news. That is what it's about. Maybe. I know it is. Maybe not. Why, it's as plain as the nose on your face. Look. The Pentagon has never consulted you before. The papers say they have a mystery on their hands. One and one still make two, so it follows that they must need information in your field. Oh, Ned, give me a break. You don't know what it would mean if I could run a story about something that took place in this century. Well, I... They didn't say it was restricted. You see? All right, it's... It's like the paper says. There have been crashes and disappearances. But the real story is what they found at the last crash. It, well, it's about five feet long. It's, it's mottled green in color. Probably broken off the body someplace. What are you talking about? It's part of something alive. Something that must be incredibly, unbelievably huge. I think it's from an insect. An insect? Here. Doesn't look very fearsome, reduced in size like that, does it? No. No, it doesn't. It looks like the spur on the leg of a grasshopper or a cricket. Grasshoppers and crickets aren't meat eaters. And at least five men have disappeared. If that is part of an insect, it's from the biggest creature that ever lived. Are you sure you're feeling all right? There were long skid marks in the snow as, as though the thing flew in for a landing. Jackson talking. Oh, hello, Professor Gunther. You have. I see, sir. Thank you. Well, they just finished the blood tests. There were no red corpuscles. From an insect. Meanwhile, in the Arctic, the people of an Eskimo village spot the mantis in the sky. It swoops down and kills several men. Later, Dr. Jackson and Professor Gunther have a discussion about Dr. Jackson's theory that the creature they are looking for must be a gigantic praying mantis. Now, we've been able to learn from pieces of amber like this that certain ancient insect forms have continued without variation until today that others have changed to meet changing conditions and certain species have vanished completely. I just can't believe that an insect as large as you suggest ever existed. Look behind you on the wall, Professor. 
That prehistoric dragonfly measures two feet from wingtip to wingtip. And like the modern dragonfly, it too is a flesh eater. All right, it's big, but it's only two feet. Is that the best you can do? I never suggested I was looking for a dragonfly. Now, what are you looking for? To be honest with you, I'm not exactly sure. You're a pathologist, Professor Gunther. The field of pathology is limited. But the paleontologist field isn't narrow to what we understand. On the contrary, we stretch our understanding to try and take in the universe. All right. Suppose, just for the sake of argument, that we admit such an insect once existed. How could it be alive today? Exactly. Even the recently discovered prehistoric Siberian mammals were dead. The natives ate the flesh, used the skin for clothing, made tools from the ivory tusks. But the mammoths were dead. Are you sure they were dead? Why? Everyone knows they were. Everyone says they were. Suppose the Siberians hadn't been in such a hurry to slice them up for steaks. Suppose they were still alive when found in the ice. Does your learned young friend always go on like this? All right, Professor. You know as well as I do that if living organism is frozen quickly enough, it is theoretically possible to stop the living protoplasm from changing their geometrical patterns, which always happens when death occurs. Theoretically, yes. Is it unreasonable then to ask yourself whether the mammoths mightn't have remained alive all those years, and it was the Siberians who killed them before they had a chance to thaw out and breathe again? You... you believe this? Well, I don't disbelieve it, and I'll go along with it till someone comes up with a better theory. Look, five men have vanished. To die is one thing. To disappear without a trace suggests complete destruction. A flesh-eating creature. But there are scores of insects that live on other insects. Where do you start? By thinking of the hook as though it were infinitely smaller. As though it were part of an insect no larger than those we know today. Like, oh, the grasshopper, the beetle, or the cricket. Then ask yourself, what flesh-eating insect of normal size has such a hook? Ned, you're making a lot of assumptions. Well, every paleontologist does. Look. You start with a jawbone, a couple of teeth, you figure whether they come from a flesh or a grass eater, and you go from there. A normal insect that is a flesh eater. I've narrowed the field to one. The diet consists mostly of small insects such as leafhoppers, grasshoppers, caterpillars, and others. A substantial part of the diet may also include small frogs and lizards. The female is larger than the male and invariably destroys her mate when he's fulfilled his function in life. Dr. Jackson is sent to Red Eagle 1 to investigate further, and upon leaving, discovers that Marge has finagled permission to accompany him as his photographer. They reach the base where all the men, including Colonel Parkman, are smitten by Marge's beauty. Colonel, Colonel, sir, uh, Dr. Jackson is here from uh, Washington. He's got a, I mean, there's a, there's a, we... Don't speak up. He's with a woman, a female woman. I thought they'd stop making them. I'll show them in. Yes, sir. I'm Ned Jackson, Colonel. I'm sure that Washington... Excuse me. This is Miss Marjorie Blaine, Colonel Joe Parkman. General Ford sent me up. I'm magazine editor for the Museum of Natural History. How do you do? How do you do? Uh, that'll be all, man. It looks like you don't have too many women up here, Colonel. Hey, well, we have a little joke up here. Uh, the boys say there's a girl behind every tree. Only try and find a tree. <laughs> 
Well, when do we see what we came for? I'll have a plane anytime you're ready. I'm ready. Colonel Parkman is showing Marge the recreation room on the base when one of the airmen asks her to dance. I thought you wouldn't mind too much if she had a look around your recreation room. Oh, she's like a butterfly gliding across a lily pond. Yes, Corporal? Well, with your permission, sir, would it be all right if... Well, would it be all right if I asked Miss Blaine to dance, sir? Corporal, that decision is entirely up to Miss Blaine. Yes, sir. I... Miss Blaine, would you care to... Well, what I mean is... Well, I'm not... Yes, Corporal, I'd love to. Later that night, Marge and Colonel Parkman joined Dr. Jackson in his office to discuss the creature, not realizing that the creature is closing in on the office window. Marge suddenly sees it and screams, and the mantis attacks the building. Hi. Hi. Hi, Ned. Thought you were going to join us. I've been busy. You two run along. Have fun. What are you up to? I'm trying to figure out how big this thing is. You know, people used to think that carnivorous plants were the bunk. Actually, there are about 450 species of them. Some are almost six feet tall. I'm convinced that we're dealing with a mantis in whose geological world the smallest insects were as large as man. And that failing to find those insects for its food, it's... Well, it's doing the best it can. If there is such a thing, why hasn't anybody seen it? Well, those who have are dead. Now, who can be sure? It may have been locked in a prison of ice millions of years ago. What could have released it after all that time? Oh, any sort of unusual vibration. You know how mountain climbers are afraid of thunder? Well, it's because the sound vibration might start an avalanche. The men of Red Eagle One fight off the gigantic mantis. Hours later, the base is still on red alert, but they finally hear that the mantis has attacked a boat off the Canadian coast, which means the mantis is flying due south and at a speed of 200 miles an hour. Got the Mid-Canada radar fence on the line, sir. This is Colonel Parkman. Ah, Colonel. Group Captain Hawkins, sir. This is just a stab in the dark. But you chaps asked us to report anything unusual and... Yes? As I said, it may not mean a thing. But we caught an unidentified object... Not scopes. Could have been a storm or a weather balloon. It was a faint signal that came and went. But it might be that oversized bug of yours, eh? What time was it? Early. Zero four hundred, I should say. Thanks, Hawkins. Thanks very much. Zero four hundred. That's almost six hours after he left here. Now, it's 1,500 miles to the Mid-Canada line, and... Well, that's no good. He'd have to be doing better than 200 miles an hour. Why not, Joe? We're dealing with an insect. The deer fly does 600 an hour. That's almost as fast as a jet. The Mid-Canada line is 1,500 miles south of here, right? Right. And where was that weather shack for? Right there, straight on the 80th meridian. 
And the and the C-47 crash was here. That's right, due south of the weather shack. What are you getting at, Ned? And the Eskimo village, right there, between us and the C-47. Hey, wait a minute. He's been going straight south. And he'll keep going south till he reaches the tropics, where he'll find the same kind of climate and jungle vegetation from which he came originally. Now, let's see, he'll probably pass over Labrador, Nova Scotia, then he'll hit the Gulf Stream. And I'm sure the warm air above the Gulf Stream will attract him and he'll follow it all the way down to South America. I've got Conan on the hotline, Colonel. They say it's important. Thanks. This is Colonel Parkman. Are you sure? Thanks. Hindry got it too. It went through Newfoundland. Well, it looks like we're on our way to Washington. Come on, Marsh. Grab your toothbrush. General Ford calls a press conference to announce the Mantis existence and ask the Ground Observer Corps to help track down the Mantis whereabouts. Our first speaker is Major General Mark Ford. General Ford. Thank you. I want to say at the outset that contrary to rumor and certain newspaper headlines, the so-called deadly mantis is no imaginary scare. It's a very real and present danger. With me this morning is Colonel Parkman, commanding officer of an advanced radar interceptor base deep in the Arctic Circle. Colonel Parkman. Thank you, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, I saw this creature attack our base. I visited the weather shack, and I also inspected the wreckage of the aircraft that this thing destroyed. Now, we have every reason to believe that the Mantis is flying south along the Gulf Stream, and we believe that it will be one of you devoted men and women of the Civilian Ground Observer Corps who will spot it next time it appears. I have with me today Dr. Nedrick Jackson, curator of the Department of Paleontology of the Museum of Natural History. Dr. Jackson has something important to show you. Doctor? Gentlemen. Thank you. This object is a spur broken off the foreleg of the mantis when it destroyed the C-47. Now, the spur of a normal-sized mantis is so small, it's difficult to measure. This spur, as you can see, is nearly five feet long, which will give you some ideas to the creature's size. Thank you, Doctor. Now, you ground observers are well trained in the identification of aircraft. Here, to scale, is the deadly mantis. And here is the C-47, which it destroyed. And one other thing. You spotters should listen for a loud droning sound, much like that of a squadron of heavy bombers flying in formation. Now, the Coast Guard and the Navy have been alerted and are standing by on the eastern seaboard. The Manus is sighted that the procedure will be the same as though an enemy aircraft had been spotted. Take no chances. Report any unusual flying object. Thank you. Over the next few days, Dr. Jackson, Marge, and Colonel Parkman tirelessly track the Mantis's progress. One late night, Colonel Parkman is driving Marge home when they receive a report of a train wreck. Soon after, a woman sees the mantis after exiting a bus. How about a couple of blankets up here? What happened? I haven't got any idea, Colonel. Something must have lifted the bus and smashed it. The front end's okay, so we know it didn't run into anything. You boys might just as well go back. There aren't any bodies. Oh, say, take care of this lady for me, will you, please? Attention. All military and civil defense personnel. Attention. All police and fire department personnel. The Mantis has been sighted over Washington. I repeat, 
The Mantis has been sighted over Washington. Let's go. Colonel Parkman and a group of pilots attempt to drive the bug into the sea. But a dense fog throws him off course, and he flies directly into the Mantis. As the wounded Mantis drops to the ground and crawls into the Manhattan Tunnel. Everything's under control on the Jersey side, sir. What about the smoke? It's backed in solid. The tarp's holding it fine. Did you go inside? Yes, sir, but we didn't get too close. How far in do you estimate it to be? Oh, I'd, uh, I'd say about a quarter of a mile from this end. That puts the mantis below the water line. I don't think we ought to wait much longer, sir. What do you think, Ned? No question in my mind that he's mortally wounded. If we can keep him in that tunnel, he'll die. Is there anything between us and the mantis in this end? Seventeen cars, according to the automatic counters. Through those tunnel walls, we've got a flood on our hands. What do you say, General? Go ahead, Joe. Good luck, Joe. All right, men. We've all been told what to do. Now, the purpose of that smoke in there is to give us cover. Use it. Now, which of you men are carrying the chemical mines? Stay up front with me. And remember, those three RG mines are effective only in a limited area. So watch for my signal before you throw them. All right, men, check masks. Colonel Parkman and his men creep past wrecked cars until suddenly the bug appears in the smoke only a few yards ahead of them. They shoot at it, but it lumbers on, forcing them backwards. The mantis seems immune to the bullet's and the first chemical bombs until only feet from the tunnel entrance, Colonel Parkman throws a bomb in its face and it collapses dead. Later, General Ford, Dr. Jackson, Colonel Parkman, and Marge enter the tunnel to examine the mantis. Marge photographs its face while the men walk around to its side. But Joe suddenly sees the mantis arm move and runs to protect Marge. I thought you said you killed it. Don't play him, Joe. That was an auto-reflex mechanism. It's dead, all right. Here, put me down. I said, put me down. What's the matter? Don't you like it up here? I've got pictures to take. Well, that can wait. This is no place for romance, Joe Parkman. What about my pictures? Let Nan do it. The movie ends with Marge in Colonel Parkman's arms. That's the end of the movie. Now it's time for some movie trivia. This movie was originally released as a double feature with The Girl in the Kremlin. The Deadly Mantis was episode 804 of Mystery Science Theater 3000. The footage showing the Eskimos fleeing from the Mantis is actually from a German movie named SOS Iceberg from 1933. Alex Tolton who resembles Della Street in this movie, was reunited with William Hooper the following year on Perry Mason in the television episode The Case of the Long-Legged Models. The Deadly Mantis was the fourth big bug movie produced in the 1950s. It was preceded by Them, Tarantula, and The Beginning of the End. It's the only movie where the insect was not a mutation of radiation. The state patrolman at the bus accident in the movie was Bing Russell. He's father to actor Kurt Russell. And that's all I have for trivia. I'm afraid I couldn't find a Star Trek connection in today's movie. So I'm going to go straight to my comments. 
I watched the 2007 DVD release from Universal Studios. It comes in a box set called Classic Sci-Fi Ultimate Collections Volume 2. It comes with Dr. Cyclops, The Land Unknown, Cult of the Cobra, and The Leech Woman. The picture and sound quality are really good on this DVD. The only extra it comes with is the theatrical trailer. The Deadly Mantis is a standard sci-fi B-movie. It's got all the elements you need to make one of these movies. It has a monster, a scientist, a military officer, and a woman, scientist, or reporter. That's all you need. There's nothing new about this story. It's been done a million times. There are two things that drive me up the wall about this movie. The first thing that bothers me is the use of stock footage. They used a lot of stock footage in this movie. I would bet you good money that this movie is half stock footage. The second thing that bothers me is the use of the word corporal. I grew up on an Air Force base, and I know that there are no corporals in the United States Air Force. There's corporals in the Marine Corps and corporals in the Army. There are airmen in the Air Force, and the character they call Corporal, he's an airman. Matter of fact, he's an airman first class. That's Other than that, it's a Saturday afternoon movie. If you haven't seen it, watch it for fun. But if you're a classic sci-fi B-movie fan, this movie is for you. On a scale from 1 to 10, I'll give this movie a solid 5. And those are my comments about this movie. That's it for today's podcast. Before I wrap up this week's podcast, I want to thank Rico again for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen today. I hope you enjoyed it. Rico will be back next week with a podcast on time travel. I'll be back soon with another classic science fiction movie. Until then, everyone take care. This is M5 signing off.